Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, welcome back to the South End Zone Podcast here on the Pigskin Podcast Network. I'm your host this week, Jason Bailey. I'm with Eric Mulhair. Eric, what's happening, man? How you doing? Oh, uh, just trying to get back to normal a little bit. Um, you know, been gone obviously, and uh, yeah, man, it's good to have you working. back. By the way, good yeah, to have you well, back. it's good to be back. It's it's obviously uh, you know much much better than what I have been doing the last couple of weeks. But uh, you know, the the last thing anyone would want me to do is uh, sit around moping about it. So here I am, and I've been actually looking forward to the show for about a month and a half, I think, since we first booked it because this is kind of the hot topic, and you know, it's tough to talk about college football. You know, in this day and age, without mentioning uh, the three letters that shall not be named. Um, Indeed. And I think there's a lot of uh, half-truths and misconceptions and outright BS out there regarding it. And thankfully, uh, we have someone who knows a hell of a lot more about it than us to kind of guide us through what's real and what's not. Well, that's not much of an accomplishment to know more about it than it's us, a low bar. She, yeah, but <laughs> but she is a, a nationally recognized expert in this kind of stuff. So uh, we do have a guest with us today. Uh, her name is Christy Dosh. She uh, runs the business of college sports and also runs a couple of podcasts. She is now doing some NIL consulting with um, uh, Christy and multiple big time universities. Right? I mean, you're. You were talking to Texas A&M's athletic director I saw recently. So you're, you've made it. You're big time. <laughs> I just spend a lot of time on college campuses, probably more time than I spent on a college campus when I was an actual college student. <laughs> so you're Me too. A, you, what, what, so you're a, uh, speaking of that, I read your book. You're a, you're a Florida alum, right? You're a Gator fan. I went to law school at Florida and I happened to be there at the perfect time to become a Gator fan because uh, they won a football national championship while I was there, two basketball national championships, and then they won another football the year after I left. So I grew up in Atlanta and didn't necessarily grow up a Gator fan, uh, but I became one really quickly when I got to Gainesville and they started winning everything. <laughs> mm, nice. Well, and yeah, for our listeners, if you uh, haven't read it, go pick up her book. It's called Saturday Millionaires. It's an excellent read if you're interested in that kind of stuff the business side of college sports and money and all that and some of that it's going to tie into this conversation that we're going to have so uh for our listeners christy we don't have to get in too much to it but just a brief overview of sort of how you got to where you are how you started you know after law school and getting into sports like what picked your interest and brought you 
to where you are now consulting in the NIO world. <laughs> so I grew up a big sports fan. I know people probably can't see, but you've got on a Braves hat. I've got my Braves gear in the background. I've got a World Series pennant. I've got a jersey that hang in my uh, video background full time because I grew up in Atlanta. And I was a kid when the Braves went from worst to first. And I am old enough that I remember exactly what that was like and how exciting it was. And I played sports my whole life. And so when I went to law school, I really wanted to find a way to combine being a lawyer with sports and unfortunately did not find that avenue straight out of law school. I moved back to Atlanta to work at a big law firm uh, and worked in a corporate law practice. And so nothing to do with sports, but I was such a big sports fan that while I was in law school and then on into my career as an attorney, I was blogging about business and legal issues in sports. And I actually started out only writing about baseball because that was kind of my first love. And then I got really interested in the money behind college sports. Because like I said, I had been at Florida when they were having so much success. And I saw what having winning teams did for the university and the town as a whole. And I became oh, yeah. super interested in that. And so that led me down uh, this, uh, let's see, I guess now like a 12, 13 year journey of writing about the business of college sports, which uh, got me my book deal. It also got me out of practicing law. I got hired away by <laughs> ESPN uh, about 11 years ago to be their sports business reporter. And I have never gone back to practicing law. I have been uh, writing and talking and consulting in the college sports space uh, for, gosh, 11 years full-time now since I left practicing law. And NIL has been in the discussion since the very beginning. I was just telling somebody earlier today, one of the first things I remember writing about the business of college sports was the Ed O'Bannon trial. And that was all about name, image, and likeness and the use of his name, image, and likeness in the EA sports video games. And it has taken us you know, all these years to get to where student athletes can actually be compensated for the use of their NIL. Man, Ed O'Banion cost me, cost me six, seven years of NCAA football on PlayStation. Yes. So, <laughs> it's coming man. back though. Just wait, yep. it's coming. <laughs> yep. So, so I hear, but I'm too old for that now I'm retired. So, <laughs> so I, I appreciate that you kind of left off uh, as far as your intro on that note because that sort of leads into my first question. You know, the NCAA appears to have been asleep at the wheel for the better part of a decade. Uh, you know, I, I think most reasonable people knew that this this train was coming down the tracks for a long, long time. And now that it's here, the NCAA has, has kind of has seemed to take a very passive aggressive, like, well, this is what you guys wanted sort of approach to to regulating it. And so I guess my real questions, you know, kind of actually maybe like a two part question. Uh, first part, what could or should the NCAA have done to to kind of get ahead of this? Because right now it's it's the wild, wild west. And second part would be, you know, in terms of, of regulating, you know, my understanding is kind of the toothpaste are already out of the tube. Like, is there anything they can do to to regulate going forward that wouldn't land them in court to take another L or are they just done with it? And, and if there is, like, do you have any faith that they could do that? Not to defend them, but I'm not sure we would have ended up in any really different place had they done something years ago, because I think no matter when they did something or what that looked like, there would have been legal challenges to it. Anytime you put any sort of parameters around something like this, someone's going to challenge them. And I, I think they really struggled with how do you allow NIL to happen and also prevent what is happening, which is that 
wealthy boosters will pay student athletes to go to specific schools, whether that's as a recruit or as a transfer. And the transfer portal has ha made this even more complicated than it would have been years ago before the transfer portal and before sort of, uh, you know, what the rules around transferring look like now. But I think even if they had done this 10 years ago, that wouldn't have stopped legal challenges. If they had done it 10 years ago and they had tried to put guardrails around it, there would have been cases around that. You know, the only thing it would really change is that student athletes would have been making money for longer. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's sort of a no-win situation. And I was telling somebody earlier today, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. It's you allow a free-for-all and let people do whatever they want, or you allow nothing, which is what they were doing before. And it's really hard to find where that middle ground is when you're talking about student athletes and not pro athletes who are employees and can collectively bargain. And, you know, you have draft restrictions and free agency, like without implementing all of that, I'm not sure how you change the outcome we ended up with. And so I think that especially given the Alston Supreme Court decision we had last summer, um, the NCAA was always gun shy about litigating this, but they definitely are now. And I do not think they are going to put any additional restrictions in place at any time at this point. So unless conferences do it or there's federal legislation, I think this is what it largely is going to look like. Okay. So you, so you brought up 10 years ago, if they had done this 10 years ago, you would have gotten the same result. And so 10 years ago, the transfer rules were different. That piece would be different for sure. So, I, I mean, to a certain extent, it would still be largely the same, but some of the, some of the stuff that, that we see going on as far as guys transferring, because, Hey, I, I can get a better NIL deal from school X, you know, even though I'm not in the transfer portal yet or these boosters from another school are talking to me and the coach has no idea that they're doing this. Right. I mean, there's reports now of, of coaches are like, wait, they're talking to who? Like, I, I don't want that guy. I'm not after that guy. Right. Uh, <laughs> type type stuff. Uh, got, whether our guys are in the transfer portal or not. So yeah. you think we, you know, NIL strictly NIL wise, we would have ended up in the same spot in, you know, 2008 or 2015 or 2022. I think with the impact on recruiting, we would be in the same place. I mean, I think you're right that the transfer portal makes things look a little different now, but would you still have had some of that? Would you have some guys who were willing to sit out a year if it meant they were making more money down the line? Yeah. I mean, I think you would sure. still have that, not to the degree you have with the transfer portal now, but I think the impact on recruiting would look exactly like it looks right now, even if this had happened 10 years ago. And you know, I told somebody earlier today, look, it's not that hard to go back and find stuff I wrote back in the day. When I first started writing about this, I was not in favor of it, not because I want to restrict <laughs> student athletes from monetizing their name, image, and likeness. And I'm a big proponent of it now. And I have helped student athletes figure out how to make more money and you know how to grow their personal brands. But I never could figure out how you did it without having it impact recruiting and competitive balance. Um, and so here we are. I don't think no one figured that out. <laughs> yeah, that's that's something I did notice when I was reading your book. I was I was thinking to myself, man, it's like she went from being a like the district attorney to you know now she's a defense attorney. Yeah. <laughs> now she's now she's consulting for you know the the inmates. It's it's weird. You know, at, at some point you accept the inevitable and you figure out how to pivot <laughs> and adjust. You know, I, right. I was always in favor. Unless you're the of, NCAA, and then you don't accept yeah. the inevitable. <laughs> well, <that's true. laughs> You know, I, I was always in favor of student athletes being able to do that. I just wanted a way 
to do it that was still fair and maintained some semblance of competitive balance. I get that there's never been competitive balance and that there have always been issues, but I was trying to figure out how do you keep from making it worse? Um, I didn't figure it out, but apparently no one else figured it out either. And so we've ended up in a place we could have been in 10 years ago. Yeah. The, the NCAA has gone just full surrender Cobra. uh, In my opinion, they are not going to legislate anything and, I said this last summer that I thought the NCAA, as as far as football was concerned, was going to die. And a lot of people said I was going off the rails there and that I was crazy. But I I was one of them. Yeah. And I don't think it's all that crazy now because the college football playoff is a corporate entity. And there's already coaches and athletic directors saying, hey, let's let's break away from the NCAA and go, you know, be under the college football playoff umbrella and things. I mean. At that point, it's a, it's not the same sport anymore. Yeah. Football teams could be actually, I mean, I've heard this proposal and it actually, from a business perspective, makes a lot of sense that football programs and maybe even men's basketball, but football programs could be separate from the university, separate from the athletic department. They could be third party entities who just licensed the trademarks and intellectual property of the university. So you could still have the same team names and they could be licensing those marks, but they could be an outside entity. The problem with that is what it does to the rest of the athletic department. I mean, football and men's basketball funds the rest of the athletic department. And right. so I think you would see massive cuts to other sports. And even with Title IX giving some protection to women's sports, you're losing all those male athletes. And so now the, the balance in the athletic department looks a lot different. But I think male and female sports suffer and that Olympic sport programs suffer. And now we're looking at a wholesale change, not just to college athletics. I think we're looking at a change to the United States Olympic development program as well. So there, there are far reaching ramifications to removing football from college athletics. Right. And including, uh, you know, like you sort of detailed out in your book a little bit, uh, you know, tuition skyrocketing to start paying the bills. So the people who don't play sports are going to feel it as well. Well, right. Somebody told me earlier today, well, if the university thinks other sports are so important, they should just fund them. And I said, from what? You know, do they raise <laughs> tuition? Do they raise student fees? Do you what, pay professors less? Like, where's that money coming from? I mean, most universities I know have some some budget problems already. Look, I, I teach at University of Florida. I am not paid well. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think there are some budgetary issues on a lot of campuses already, and this would potentially make it worse. Now, you balance some of that out with the licensing fee for these outside football entities to use your licensing, but it's not going to replace the kind of revenue you're getting from having football in-house. Yeah, that's something I don't think a lot of college football fans realize is how much money from the the university itself goes to fund these. Like, I I remember reading an article on uh, the athletic director at the University of Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. who is a really well-regarded guy right in his field, uh, because he runs one of the few uh, FBS-level you know, division one athletic departments that are, are entirely self-funded. That, that is the exception and not the rule. So when you get into, well, where's this money going to come from? I, all the stuff you detailed out, I can tell you exactly where it's going to come from. It's going to come from teacher pay. It's going to come from student tuition and and so on Mm -hmm. and so on. So. And, you know, I I did consulting years ago at UAB when they cut football and then were considering bringing it back. And I was on the team that did the consulting report that ultimately brought football back at UAB. And we were on campus meeting with student groups 
who were willing to raise the student fee at UAB to keep football. Like it was important to them to have football as a activity and as a community engagement tool on campus. I mean, they were actually willing to vote for and increase the student fee to help fund football. So that's not to say football would necessarily go away, but I bet there's a lot of students who wouldn't be excited about that student fee going up. I, I went to an undergrad that didn't have football, so we didn't have that kind of athletic fee that we had to pay. Uh, and I, I'm sure there's a lot of students who wouldn't be happy about that going up. Mm, yeah, I can imagine. So, uh, so yeah, as far as the NCAA goes, I, I don't know what they're going to do. I think it's headed in a direction away from them and there's really nothing that is going to be done about it. I, I don't, I mean, do you disagree with the fact that there's really nothing they're going to do as far as, you know, extra or try to, put any more sanctions or penalties on teams that are breaking the rules down the line. I mean, I just, I don't see it. I think it's just, we've washed our hands of it. No, I don't see it either. I mean, we just got new guidelines around collectives. I expected them to be (laughs) a little more substantial than they were. It basically just said collectives Mm -hmm. are boosters. And it was like, yeah, yeah, no duh. Like, if you want to call them, I don't think anyone was arguing that, right? Um, You know, and there were a couple of like tiny sort of interesting things in there, but it it didn't word quite the way I thought that it might. And I think that further reinforces the idea that they are not going to promulgate more rules around this or put up those initial guardrails that they talked about a year and a half ago when this discussion really was heating up. Um, And so it's going to come from conferences or it's going to come from the federal government. Quite frankly, I don't think it's going to come from the federal government, but I do think there's some movement for conferences to get more involved in rulemaking around NIL and potentially around um, enforcing NIL as well. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion, but I do think those discussions are happening. Uh, How do you mean regulating conferences, regulating NIL as far as where the money's coming from? No. So conferences could each set their own rules around NIL. They could have rules that are far more restrictive than the NCAA rules, and they could have their own enforcement of those. And in fact, there are one or two conferences, not Power Five conferences, but there are a couple of other conferences that I I don't remember off the top of my head that did put rules out last summer when NIL first started to happen. Um, And so conferences would be able to do that. And my conversations that I've had with other attorneys are that it would be tougher to mount an antitrust lawsuit against one or even multiple conferences versus mounting against the NCAA. So the conferences could probably get away with more restrictive rules than the NCAA could, whether or not conferences would actually do that. You know, nobody wants to be the first. Nobody wants to be the only one because that's going to put their schools at a competitive disadvantage. Uh, But if you all do it at the same time and they all look the same, then you get a collusion lawsuit. So, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces to that happening. But I know that those conversations are happening um, and conferences are considering what, if anything, they might do to restrict NIL activities. Hmm. Well, that'll be interesting to see for sure. That's I mean, again, when this uh, playoff contract is up in 2025, I believe it'll be. Really interesting to see what happens to the sport as a whole. But something you touched on a little bit ago, Christy, that uh, me and Eric are really interested in, I know there's a ton of people that are, is collectives. Now, collectives, university-specific collectives are popping up all over the country. I've been keeping up with your list, and it's getting, I mean, (laughs) it's got to be difficult. There's a lot of schools with multiple now. Yeah, right. I feel like I add one at least once a day. 
Right. It, so it, it's <laughs> it's crazy. All of them that are popping up and a lot of them are disappearing just as fast as they pop up. But what are some of the common misconceptions around these collectives? Because when I think NIL collective, all I think of is money laundering and a way to funnel <laughs> money to a kid illegally. So, you know, without just diving into a lot of like the guy at Miami, John Ruiz, the billionaire mm-hmm. who owns all that collective. And he said, oh, well, I send every NIL deal that I make to the Miami compliance department. So I don't really know what a collective is specifically. Is it a corporate entity? Is it a nonprofit? Like run me down exactly most of what you've seen in the collective department, what they actually are, what they do. Yeah, but you got to dumb it down. Yeah, (laughs) there's a few different models, but generally speaking, you know, we're talking fans, boosters, whatever you want to call them, who uh, usually a group of them who have gotten together and decide that they want to help student athletes from their university get more NIL deals. And I'd say there's three basic models we've seen at this point. There's a membership model. So like Gator Collective at University of Florida is a membership model. Um, I think you can join for as little as $9.99 a month or something like that. So very affordable for every fan. This doesn't have to be just big money donors. And it gets you access to exclusive events online, in person, NFT drops, merchandise, autographed uh, merchandise giveaways. You know, it, it allows you to become part of this community. And then they're pooling that money and paying the student athletes to show up for the Zoom Q&A or show up at the in-person event or put on a football clinic or, you know, there, there's any number of ways that they're compensating student athletes. Um, some of these collectives just support one sport like football or baseball. Um, we, we have seen both of those, uh, but others support all of the different athletic programs. Some start in a few sports and then expand. So we've got that membership model. And then there's also what I would call a marketplace model where they're focused on recruiting local businesses to work with student athletes. And they're trying to match those businesses and brands with individual student athletes. I would say largely for social media promotion, but there, there's a little in-person appearance and some other things going on there as well. And then there's the charitable model, which was the most suspicious when it popped up. I remember I wrote about the first one, which was Horns with Heart at University of Texas. And everyone was like, what a scam. They're just funneling money to players, you know. But actually, there's a lot of collectives based around this now. And that allows uh, fans and boosters to donate money to the collective. Now, those collectives, a lot of them either already are 501c3 tax-exempt entities, meaning you can get a tax deduction for your donation, or they've applied for it. Um, that, That probably will not be the case for ones that have a membership or a marketplace model. But the ones with this charitable model, they're having fans and boosters donate money to them. And then they are partnering with local charities and they are paying student athletes to promote those local charities through social media, in-person appearances, actually doing service work with these organizations. And it for sure is the most suspicious of the three models. But I'll say this. I was on campus out of school a couple of months ago, and I was sitting with a student athlete who has a large social media following and has made good money and could make even more. And she said to me, you know, what people are missing when they talk to us, the athletic department, you know, these outside companies and agents who talk to us, you know, they all want to talk to us about the money that we can make. And she was like, you know, me and my teammates, you know, the money's great, but like we care about making an impact on our community. And I'm looking for ways to make an impact, not just ways to make money. 
Now, that's not true of every student athlete, but I do think that college age kids <laughs> tend to be more socially conscious than we are when we're adults and we have more responsibilities and more bills to pay. And so I, I do think there are things about the charitable model that appeal to student athletes, especially if we take football out of the equation and we talk about the gymnast who's getting paid to work with a charity or the women's sure. lacrosse player who's getting paid to work with a charity. You know, it looks a little different when we're guaranteeing $40,000 a year to a football player. Yeah, pretty pretty risk-free for the student. <laughs> So it, it's interesting because when Horns with Heart did it, people felt like, you know, it was kind of a ballsy move and like for sure the NCAA was going to step in and do something about that. And now we've got a dozen or more of these collectives that have that charitable focus. So, uh, and the Nobody NCAA should have ever thought that the NCAA was going <laughs> to step in and do anything no. ever. And nobody should have been surprised that Texas was the first to jump no, out and do it. Yeah, yeah, that either. That's, that's even less surprising than the NCAA not doing anything. Yeah. So th those are kind of the basic models that we've seen at this point. Some of them do two of those things. I don't think any of them do all three of those things. Um, but I think we're up to something like 65 different collectives. I haven't counted them in the last week or two, but you know, we are talking dozens of collectives. And Eric, like you mentioned a few minutes ago, there are schools that have multiple collectives, several that have two, three, even four collectives. And last week, we saw our very first merger of collectives. Florida State, Florida State. had three collectives. Now they're down to two because two of theirs, uh, Rising Spear and Warpath, merged together. And I think we'll see some of those mergers happen. But here's a, an interesting like behind-the-scenes thing I've learned <laughs> doing consulting with collectives is some of the collectives that have started that have been like a second one have started because the founder of that one doesn't like the founder of the first one. Okay, you got to remember, these boosters don't all necessarily get along. Just because oh, yeah, they all went to ego. the same school and they all support the same school doesn't mean they're buddies. Um, and there's oh, yeah. a lot of ego involved, quite frankly. Oh, yeah. And so if, some if you of give me these three guesses, I can up. probably pick which school. <laughs> some of them are starting up in a somewhat, I would say, competitive nature with the other collective for their school. Uh, but for student athletes, it's nothing but good. It just means there's more people working on their behalf. So. Well, and something I, I had a question about, these billionaires, what are they getting out of putting all this money up for these players outside of just players coming to play for their school, ideally, which to me, it's just pay for play. I mean, we'll get into that more a little bit later, but what is the main benefit to running a collective? Well, you should know that. So it depends on the collective. <laughs> you know, obviously there are some collectives and some boosters who are just trying to get the top talent to their university. They are willing to pay. And, you know, I, I had an interesting conversation with somebody earlier and I said, do you think like a New England Patriots fan would, if if the NFL looked different and looked like college athletics, do you think they'd be dipping into their pockets to pay people to come play there? Like the pros no. are just, I don't know. I don't think fans are the same way with grown men as they are with 17 year olds that they want to convince to come to their school. So there's definitely some of that going on. But I've also had calls with, Folks who are founding some of these collectives, they're volunteers, they're doing this in their free time, they're building out mentorship programs and professional development programs. They're not even talking about spending money and giving money to student athletes. I just worked with one the other day and they were setting up this mentorship program, which they could have done before NIL. It's just NIL, I think, has gotten people thinking more about this kind of stuff. And they're matching up alumni with student athletes for these mentorship opportunities. And there's no money involved at all. So I do think there are people out there who 
just have a, a passion for their university. A lot of them are former student athletes and they want to sort of pay it forward. And again, a lot of that they could have done even before NIL. Um, so there's a real range depending on what collective we're talking about. Yeah, I'm going to highball that at 5% of those people yeah. <laughs> are billionaires. Um, and I would say that's a really high estimate. Yeah, I, I just, I, you, sh you talk about that as far as what motivates those people to do that type of stuff. And I think back to, and I don't even remember who it was, but someone, and I apologize in advance for being crass, but, you know, someone told me once, like, being rich is just being, it's just being in a constant dick measuring contest. Like, when you talk about these billionaires and it's just, oh, well, you know, this other guy that I'm an acquaintance with, but we're not really friends, right? And it's a very competitive atmosphere. Like, oh, well, he, he started a collective. Well, I can do it better than him type oh, of yeah. thing. What's like paying right? to so, stick your name on a building on campus. I mean, that it's the same. It's concept. a lot like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. <sighs> Tons of ego. All right. Well, uh, Eric, do you have any questions for her about uh, collectives or the NCAA before <laughs> we take a break here? Uh. I have one quick question and just because we've, we've kind of not really danced around, but we've, we've lightly touched on a bunch of different, we've talked about what schools are doing or what collectives are doing or what athletes are able to do. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions in general out there about what is and is not legal currently. So I guess just maybe like a quick true false, just to get us into the break. <laughs> so true or false, uh, schools can pay athletes directly. False. Boosters can pay athletes directly true you kidding me it should be current college students not high school students <laughs> not, not prior oh, to enrollment right correct and some of that guidance is new i mean that there have been deals with high school student athletes the new guidance that just comes out came out makes it clear that really they should be focusing on current student athletes not future student athletes Okay, but that varies by state, correct? Well, the new NCAA guidance was a little more clear that it needs to be current student athletes, not recruits. Now, prior to that, it did vary. And there's only a handful of states where high school student athletes can do deals without risking their high school eligibility unless they're at a private school or academy. There's a lot of paths to go down. <laughs> yeah, 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 a lot of caveats to that. It sounds like athletic departments can broker NIL deals between players and a third party. Sometimes. That does depend on state law. Okay. There are some athletic departments in states that do not have a state law where the athletic department is pretty involved. BYU is a really good example of that. And the NCAA okay. has no rule against that. Okay. Um, so I, I, then I would assume that it varies by state on how much interaction a coaching staff slash boosters slash collective could have. Same. Yeah. About half the okay. states still don't have laws. And then now you have states amending their law. Texas, uh, I'm sorry, Tennessee and Mississippi both recently amended theirs and it made it uh, a little more viable for athletic department staff and coaches to work with outside third parties like collectives. Oh, shocker. Right after a, right after a Tennessee quarterback gets a five-star $8 million quarterback. Yeah. Boy, the two states with four SEC shocker. teams. Shocking. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then I guess last one. So college players, players are or are not allowed to have agents. They are allowed to have agents. So you can't sign away your pro time. It can only be for the period that you're college eligible. You have to re-sign a new contract after your college eligibility is up. Okay. So it's not like a sports agent. It's more like a marketing guy type thing. And some of those are sports agents who have decided to venture into marketing solely because they want to develop relationships with these guys so that they'll sign with them when they're ready to go into the draft. 
Okay. Oh yeah. But then how yeah. how legal is that? Uh, if a- the same guy signs with him later, <laughs> it, that's totally allowed. In fact, somebody on my team is working on a story right now about players entering the NBA draft who has actually switched agents versus who has stayed with the same agent. All right. Well, that is. Yeah, that I think that's going to cover our conversation on collectives, at least for now. There will be plenty more to revisit. Um, but uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we're when we get back, we'll do some good, bad, and ugly. So we'll be right back with you. NBA playoff action is non-stop at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets if they do. Looking to turn a little bit of cash into a lot of cash? With DraftKings Same Game Parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay, combine multiple bets, and boom, you have a shot at an even bigger payout. Right now, all customers can place a Same Game Parlay with three or more legs and get a free bet back up to $25 if one leg doesn't hit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use the promo code TPPN. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game and get $150 in free bets if they do. That's promo code TPPN. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility with restrictions apply. See our show notes for the details. South End Zone Podcast here on the Pigskin Podcast Network. We are here with Christy Dosh talking some NIL and uh, about how bad Eric's internet sucks. But uh, aside, <laughs> but aside from that, well, I, I can't really hate on you because God, you know, I'm so thankful for our listeners who suffered through my, uh, you know, episode I did last week and you know a terrible part of it part of the united states where there's apparently no uh I still use it's like aol dial-up status so <laughs> it was uh it was a rough episode but uh so christy now that we're back we're gonna do a little bit of good bad and ugly about nil here so the first thing we're gonna start with the good and what are i guess some of the like advantages to nil as far as like the health of college football like is it good for the sport overall and what's some of the, like the best or better NIL deals that you have seen? You don't have to name specific players, obviously, or schools, but just some of the general good things you're seeing. And is it a good thing that this is here for the health of college football? Yeah, I think in both football and men's basketball, we're seeing student athletes decide to come back when they might have otherwise entered the draft for monetary reasons. And whether that's because they want to finish their degree or because they want more time to develop or maybe both of those things, I do think it is going to influence more of those guys to come back and finish up their college eligibility because they have that ability to make money on the side with NIL. So 
I see that as a net positive. And there have been some really heartwarming stories about guys who've been able to send money home to support, you know, single parents and families and sick relatives and that kind of stuff. And it was always really heartbreaking to see those situations and those guys not having the ability to do those things. Um, what I wonder if we're going to see shifting towards maybe the bad for the health of college football, you know, in addition to the issues we've already discussed around collectives and sort of paying players to go to certain schools is the health of the locker room atmosphere. I had Taj Boyd on my podcast last year before NIL went into effect. And we talked about his time at Clemson and what it would have been like if NIL had existed. And he actually brought up that he was concerned about what it would do to the locker room atmosphere because he said, you were already in a position as the quarterback where guys were going to come in the locker room at halftime and complain that they weren't getting the ball enough and that sort of thing. And now if they've got marketing money riding on how much playing time they're getting and you know how much their name's getting called out, um, that those conversations would intensify. Now, I talked to guys this season and they said that that wasn't really happening. Everybody seemed to think everything was, you know, happy-go-lucky. But now you're going to have incoming freshmen who got recruited and paid obscene amounts of money or what what to me feels like obscene amounts of money to, uh, you know, go into their college career and they're going to come in making more than some of the starters and the guys that have been there for years or the coaches, right? Is that going to affect the locker room? I don't know. I've never been in a football locker room. So, you know, I I can't tell you, but when I talked to Taj Boyd, he was worried about it. Yeah. And he should be. I mean, you've got players coming in now that are making more than the coaches. Like you, a basketball player comes in on an eight hundred thousand dollar NIL deal. He's making more than the head basketball coach. Yeah, and I'm not gonna lie, or or at least at least all of these. I have worked for someone where I made more money than my boss did, and it did not go well. (laughs) Like that, that does not foster a good working atmosphere if your boss knows you make more money than they do. No. So, and that's kind of where I'm going to this. It's like when I sit back and think, like what. What good is this doing the sport as a whole? I can't really think of too many things. It, it's good for the players, sure. But the sport of college football, I can't really come up with very many good things that it's going to do for it. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. You're right. It's good for the individual players, but is it healthy for the sport overall? I don't know that it is. But but even saying that, like I still – would almost rather not almost i would rather have this model where the the people who are kind of the backbone of that industry are the ones actually benefiting from it as opposed to before like the story i always tell kind of how i became an nil convert is when uh so i have twin boys they're 18 uh when they were playing rec league football uh and this would have been the fall of i think maybe 2014 13 in in there uh you know rec league football here they, they play a lot of times they'll play Saturday morning at the high school stadium. And I remember going to one of their games and uh, they played for the Longhorns that season. And the Longhorns were not back that year. Longhorn Nation, we're back. Um, kind of an inside <laughs> joke there, Christy. Um, but no, I, I was at this game on a Saturday morning. It's like nine o'clock, right? Because they got to do it. I live in Georgia. They got to do it before it gets too hot out. And I saw four or five little kids wearing a number three Todd Gurley UGA jersey. And that sticks out to me because at the time, Todd Gurley was serving like a three or four game mm-hmm. suspension because he was autographing footballs and eight by tens and he got paid like two grand. And I was like, well, 
so so the University of Georgia can make money on selling a Todd Gurley jersey. Todd Gurley can't make money. He can't make two grand on himself. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, where I became a convert, I guess, uh, kind of became a believer. And I think even with all the problems that it's caused, I would still feel better about this model where it's sort of a free-for-all as opposed to college kids, many of whom already come from disadvantaged backgrounds being exploited by rich people. Yeah, I think that's fair. But that's just me. Man. All right. Well, that's going to lead me into the bad. <laughs> so we're not we're not we quite go. to the ugly yet. We'll get to the ugly here <laughs> shortly. But uh, so as far as the bad, we, we touched on it a little bit with the effect on locker rooms. But from a legal standpoint and a financial standpoint, what is the downside of NIL as far as the schools go? Because I can't when I think about NIL, I really don't think it's bad for the schools because they're not really the ones that are, you know, fronting the dollars to get these big players there. It's just like, it's like agents are the biggest winner of this because they're thinking, shit, we've been paying for these kids for years under the table. And now we don't have to do that. And like the boosters are paying for it. I I feel like the schools probably feel the same way, you know, but they were never quotations paying for the players anyway. So what what's the bad side of this from a monetary or legal standpoint? Yeah. As far as the sport as a whole goes. I'd say a couple of things. One, you know, it has taxed athletic department resources in terms of people, especially because it came on the heels of the pandemic when people had been laid off and furloughed and budgets had been cut and salaries reduced and that kind of stuff. Um, And so I think, especially when you get out of some of the biggest athletic departments and you get into the others, you've got people who got something added to their job and they were already, you know, they already had a full plate. I did something with a division two conference and this one guy was sitting there with a full cup of coffee and he, he was a compliance officer and he said, you know, this is what my cup already looked like. And then he said, it was like someone came and just kept pouring on top of it and it was spilling out all over my desk. So I do think it has taxed some resources, especially in athletic departments that are not rolling around in cash. Um, And then athletic departments have a real fear that this is going to impact their sponsorship dollars, that the local Honda dealership is only allotting X amount of money to marketing. And if now part of that's going to players, in addition to going to the athletic department, you know, the pie is being cut more ways and that athletic departments are going to see their sponsorships reduced. That being said, I have not heard any evidence of it actually happening yet. Some of that might be um, because we're still in the beginning of this and fleshing it out. And brands are probably trying to figure out where are they getting the most bang for their buck? Is it working with individual student athletes? Is it working with the school? Is it working with both of them together? I mean, I think there's ways that athletic departments can also partner with their student athletes on NIL deals, especially when it comes to NFTs and using their intellectual property for stuff like that and merchandise. But there's some very real concern in athletic departments that sponsorship money is going to dry up. Oh, man. How much of that concern is centered around like conflict? Like, so you talked about a Honda dealership. So if a Honda dealership has a, a some sort of like a sponsorship deal with, you know, University X and that player or that university has a player who signs a sponsorship or NIL deal with a Toyota dealership. Like, is, is that like a, an issue or uh, sometimes? <laughs> so like many of the other questions, it depends. <laughs> Some of the state laws specifically say that student athlete deals cannot conflict with existing 
uh, athletic department or university partnership. So for example, if you, if it's a, a Coca-Cola university and athletic department that the student athlete wouldn't be able to sign a separate deal with Pepsi, but that's not true everywhere that only some states have that in their legislation. And then institutional policies that schools you know put together themselves some institutional policies say that some do not i actually have not heard from a student athlete or an agent who has said we wanted to sign this deal and we couldn't because it conflicted with the athletic department that's not to say it's not happening but i have not heard people pitching a real fit over that hmm. yeah that's interesting man that, yeah so that that makes me think about like if arch manning wants to sign a contract with adidas but he goes to Alabama and Adidas is like, we want you to wear your Adidas cleats. And Alabama's like, hell no, you can't do that. We wear Nike. That cre yeah. could create a massive You can wear problem. them on the bench, son. Yeah, I yeah. think that's coming, but it hasn't happened yet. The the big apparel brands have like barely dipped their toes into the NIL waters. Nike, Adidas, they've only done a small amount in NIL. I don't think Under Armour's done anything at all. I don't think Reebok has done anything at all. So those conflicts haven't really like come to a head yet, but I think they will. Mm. Yeah, that'll be... Man, that's going to be a nightmare when it does come to pass. That's going to be a mess. Oh, yeah. It's going to be nasty. So that brings me to the ugly side of college football, as Jimbo Fisher likes to call it. I think that's probably your favorite press conference of the offseason, Eric. I'm just, I, just it's, it's not in my top five, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right. So the main thing that, I, that is going on, it's seemingly everywhere that is a major violation of NCAA rules is tampering. And I, you know, I don't know what or if in the NCAA can do anything about it. I don't think they're going to tampering is happening everywhere. We just saw Jordan Addison at Pittsburgh jump into the portal. There's massive accusations that USC's tampering with him, that Alabama's tampering with him. So from an NIL standpoint, like, Boosters recruiting players that coaches don't even want. No one's in the leadership position seems to even care. Like, what are some of the like you know worst NIL deals that you've seen in regard to the way they look? You know, like it does it. I guess the shadiest looking ones that you've seen. You don't have to name schools or players, but <laughs> but, but feel free. If you but, want yeah, to. absolutely, feel free. We don't hold any punches here, but you know. It, uh, contractually, we don't want to get you in trouble. So what's some of the more negative things you've seen in the, like the tampering world or the suspicious looking stuff? I think you mentioned one earlier, Jason, which was the $8 million deal for an, uh, a recruit out of California. Actually, I think yeah. it was an unnamed recruit for an unnamed collective. Uh, there's been yeah. a lot of speculation about who it is and about what school it is. Uh, I have speculated and had to block a lot of people on Twitter because I got a lot of hate for it. <laughs> so I'm going oh, yeah. to refrain from repeating that. But um, <laughs> I think that has been the most egregious example we've seen. The collectives that I've been consulting with myself and some of the other attorneys that I work with that are giving legal advice, we have said do not sign deals deals with high school athletes. I, you know, none of us felt like that um, was in the spirit of what the, the NCAA was going to allow here. And 
Um, so I personally have a problem with those deals. I don't think collectives and boosters should be doing deals with high school student athletes um, because that is when you get into this inducement and tampering. Um, that's not the only example. There definitely have been others. And then with the transfer portal, we're seeing it too. Um, we've seen deals. You talked about Life Wallet earlier. You know, we saw Life Wallet sign a deal with a basketball player. I think it's two years, eight hundred thousand dollars. Yep. yep. Four hundred thousand each year plus a car. Yeah. Um, is that market value for that student athlete? I don't know. You know, <laughs> the, yeah. the idea of trying to figure out what market value is, is market value just what someone's willing to pay for it? I mean, that's yeah. what some people would argue. Ah, man, and that, <laughs> that that's another, like some of these, uh, collectives operating as like a nonprofit, you know, a charitable institution. It just, like I said earlier at the opening of the show, it's just money laundering to me. That's it's exactly what it screams to me. I'm sure there's cases of people that are doing the right thing out there. I have no doubt about that. But to me, when I see players getting paid millions of dollars in high school, nothing about that screams legitimate or good or helpful in any way. <laughs> I just, I, I just like, want to know these people who have so much money that they want to spend it on a 17 year old in the hopes that he is good enough to change the outcome of a season for their team. I just don't, if I had money, that's not how I would spend it. So no, it's tough no. for me to understand. Well, and something about that spending money on a high school kid, something I noticed, and I think you tweeted about this. I noticed this in your Twitter feed. Some of these contracts that these uh, student athletes or these high school kids are signing like they're signing away their intellectual property with no time limits on it. Yeah. Like it's not supposed to go beyond their college eligibility. Now, whether that's actually ending up in the contracts or not, but it's not supposed to go beyond their college eligibility. But I think the one I tweeted about was a high school student athlete who had signed away their intellectual property rights, their right to their own name, image, and likeness for their full four years of eligibility plus I think they had also signed away the rights to their own Twitter feed, if I remember that story correctly. It didn't oh, say who geez. the student athlete was, but the person who tweeted it and knew about it said it was only a three-figure deal. So we're talking about for less than $1,000, a high school student athlete who hasn't even played <laughs> at the college level at all and doesn't know how good they will or won't be or what they will be worth down the road has signed away the right to their own name, image, and likeness and to their Twitter feed. You know, that that's another whole concern is that you've got high school and college athletes who are signing things that they don't completely understand because they don't all have agents, you know, only like the top 1%, um, not just 1% in terms of playing ability, but 1% in terms of Instagram and TikTok following, you know, they're the ones who have agents, but I have looked at some really bad contracts student athletes have sent me. They do not understand what they're signing away. Oh, well, sure. And that, I think that leads into why these billionaires and these collectives want to sign high school kids because a large portion of them don't have anyone that's guiding them and they don't have legal representation and who can someone that can interpret these contracts, which I'm sure are, a lot of them are very convoluted. Yeah, the, these dudes are walking in the door with an advantage already because they understand what the contract says and the, the student does yeah. not. Yeah, it's a nightmare. Like it's 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 almost as exploitative as the old model was, where it was just universities making money after you know dollar after dollar after dollar. 
on the backs of, you know, effectively. Well, and you know what's going to happen is there are going to be parents who are bad actors who sign away their rights to their under 18 child who can't sign away their own rights. Because I, I worked at the WTA tour as an intern when I was in law school. And a lot of players on the WTA tour are under 18. A lot of them, their parents are their manager. And a lot of those parents are, are, frankly, they, they weren't necessarily good people, you know, I mean, they, they were, they were doing things with their child's future and with their marketing and endorsement rights that um, just didn't make any sense at all. And I'm sure that's already happening and will continue to happen. And then I think you are going to maybe see some states step in and try to legislate around that, especially California has been very uh, apt to jump into this and try and legislate around it because you are going to have parents who are going to try to bind their under 18 children to things uh, that are going to put them at a great disadvantage when it comes to NIL. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's this sort of thing. Cause you mentioned, you know, WTA, I, I would think the majority, well, not the majority, but a, a healthy, healthy percentage of, of those players are under mm -hmm. 18 because women's tennis players, you know, they retire at like yep. 26, like they're done. So I, God, so every bad story you've heard about parents, you know. Have you ever been kinda... to a youth game? I mean, all, everyone out there listening has been to a youth <laughs> baseball, football, whatever game. Right. You have met like that parent. Okay, there's a lot of those parents across the country, and they are going to lead their under 18 student athletes into some really bad deals. Right. So instead of like parents at the 12U travel baseball tournament living vicariously through their kids like it's life and death, now they're they're kind of in financial control of their their children's yeah. future and, and effectively mortgaging it away Yikes. on a bad like bad deal mm. we got yeah. really ugly <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's oh, golly i don't even so you you mentioned a couple minutes ago you mentioned uh nfts and i guess I, i've read bits and pieces here about how that is kind of a i guess really my question centers around what kind of uh non-monetary compensation models for these nil deals have you seen as far as you know okay well a car or uh equity stake in the company i know jason and i were talking before we started recording about quinn mm -hmm. ewers who uh he reclassified in high school he he graduated high school a year early so that he could sign an nil right. deal um as a college student vice a high school student because because texas didn't allow high school students Right. And he was offered an equity stake in this company. And that was kind of a driver between or a driver for him to to leave high school early. Or uh, I, I've read bits and pieces about NFTs being part of the compensation package and that I don't understand NFTs enough to to know whether the player, right, whether the student is getting screwed or not. My suspicion is yes. <laughs> but really, my question is, what kind of non dollar figure uh, compensation packages have you seen that maybe raise your eyebrows as far as these deals go? Yeah, we've seen a lot of uh, product-related deals. And I always tell student-athletes, don't accept a product deal if it's not a product that you really want and will use and aren't willing to spend money to buy for yourself. Like I, I always tell female student athletes, do not accept the $12 tube of lipstick to put up a post. It's going to, the time it's going to take you to shoot the product for them to be happy with it and to post it and what it's going to do to your feed. It's not worth it for a $12 tube of lipstick. Now, 
I have done influencer deals and gotten product that's, you know, I have one sitting in my bedroom right now that's worth $800. It's this really cool mattress pad. <laughs> um, that was worth it to me because it was an $800 product and it required very little from me in order to get it. It was something I already used. The one I had had died. It's a mattress pad that can be cooled or heated. Mine had died. I wanted a new one. It was totally worth it to me to agree to this influencer deal for that. So, you know, I, I think the bad deals are for product that's relatively cheap or product that you weren't going to use anyway. But like it feels so validating to get offered something free that student athletes often say yes without really thinking about the work that has to go into create a social media post or whatever it is you're doing in exchange for that product. I I have I've seen a few in the NFT space, um, but I too am not super up on NFTs. I've been studying it more from like an intellectual property perspective in terms of how athletic departments and student athletes are sort of coming together for some of these NFTs and less about NFTs being used for compensation. That would totally depend on what the NFT is. I mean, there's certainly NFTs that are worth a lot of money, but there's also a lot that are worth essentially nothing. Um, so I think it just depends on on what it is. So, but how prevalent are those, or is it just the majority of what you see is just I think dollars? The, uh, I think the majority of what you see is dollars until you get down into student athletes who are doing social media deals that have five thousand or less followers. Um, you know, I, I do think there are student athletes who are under five thousand, and maybe even some under ten thousand, who are getting offered product in their DM. Especially, I think women get a lot from uh, fashion boutiques and beauty brands that are not high value products that they're willing to send you for free in exchange for an Instagram post. So I think there's probably a decent amount of that happening, but we're probably not talking about college football players, at least not ones that you would recognize their names. All right. So, so I'm just going to wrap us up here. So Christy, where do you really see, I guess, where do we go from here? <laughs> like as far as college football as a whole goes, I know all of us fans want to preserve the sport as much as possible the direction I see it going is like a, a minor league for the NFL, you know, and I, I, I don't think that's really a good thing. Like who wants to create a product that's like the NFL, but with not as much talent. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's good. I mean, do you agree with that? It's kind of the trajectory it's on, or do you think it's largely going to stay close to the same because there's just too much money in it for it to die? I mean, I, I think we are on this trajectory of college football becoming some sort of separate entity like we talked about earlier. Mm. Um, you know, the National Labor Relations Board, which sort of governs employee relations, has basically said, bring us a case. Their uh, legal counsel said she thinks that football players are employees and basically said, you know, she can't she can't change the law or make that the case. But if someone brings her a case, they can rule in the student athlete's favor and say that they're employees. And I think that that would really change the makeup of college athletics. And I do think if football players are employees, then I think you see football split away from the athletic department. So I fear that we're headed in that direction. Yeah, I would have to agree. You know, if you're a student athlete, God, I hope you go listen to this episode because, you know, <laughs> it, uh, uh, well, Christy, uh, how can our listeners find you? So all my work is on businessofcollegesports.com. So much NIL content there, probably more than anyone wants. So anything you're curious about, it's probably there. And then 
on all the major social media networks. I am at Sports Biz Miss in my SS at the end um, and love hearing from people. So if there was a question you had that we didn't get to, by all means, tweet it to me. I use Twitter the most. So uh, that's probably the best place to catch me. All right. Well, good deal. Well, Christy, we appreciate you so much for coming on and devoting your time to us at, uh, I know your schedule is absolutely nuts and, uh, you know, go Braves. Uh, hopefully yes, go we can, Braves. <laughs> hopefully we can turn it around, uh, you know, and get back to looking like the world series champs. But, uh, yeah, again, we appreciate you coming on and you guys can find us on Twitter at South end zone pod, and you can follow us individually. You can find us, uh, at our, on our Twitter page. We're all over it, so go give us a follow. Go give Christy a follow and uh, pick up her book. It's called Saturday Millionaires. It's a fantastic read. So uh, We will be back with you guys next week. See you then. Thank you very much. Have a great day.